Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Taylor in 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. You know, this month, my wife and I are celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. So I was looking at some pictures uh, from our wedding from 12 years ago. And notice how good I look in that tuxedo from Leon Taylor. Not just me, but all my groomsmen as well. And so if you got a big formal event or a wedding this fall or maybe wedding next spring, think about our good friends over at Leon Taylor. Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy would be happy to see you. I'm happy to make you look as good today as I did 12 years ago. Well, It'll almost look as good as me as 12 years ago. I'm just kidding. So we go by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you. 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Well, Donald Trump's indictments, three, possibly four, are no big shock or big surprise to anyone these days. But how exactly does this all work? How do indictments come down? Uh, how do arraignments work? So for all this, sort of a criminal law 101, I decided to call up an old friend, uh, my old friend uh, and college professor from St. Louis University 20 years ago, David Harris, uh, who is now professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and all that other criminal stuff. So, David, my friend, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to chat with you, sir. Abdul, great to be back with you. Uh, so, first of all, let me just get uh, your thoughts as sort of a third-party observer on all the stuff that's been going on with the former president. Well, uh, anybody else uh, at, at his third indictment, maybe four uh, uh, altogether, uh, would kind of be drowning under the weight of these legal processes. Uh, Mr. Trump uh, uh, talks as if this is the best thing that could ever have happened to him, and he's raising money off it, and he's getting his crowds excited off of it. Um, he is uh, in some real legal jeopardy. Some of these cases are stronger than others. Some are more important than others. Uh, but uh, we're going to have the Donald Trump in trial campaign going forward from this point. Uh, so help us out here. How exactly does an indictment work? Well, an indictment, that word simply means formal charges. And prosecutors can charge crimes uh, in two basic ways. There is no constitutional requirement that a grand jury hand down an indictment. An indictment is a set of charges that come from a grand jury. Prosecutors can also charge crimes based on their own sworn statements. These are usually called prosecutorial informations. They're just a set of charges. And what it means, basically, is that there is probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed by the person charged and that the case will go forward from this point. Doesn't mean it'll eventually go to trial, people plead guilty, charges get dismissed sometimes, but that's what it is. And the word indictment specifically indicates that a grand jury met on these charges and voted the indictment. A grand jury isn't like a jury in a courtroom that we think of. It meets in secret, evidence is presented to it by the prosecutor, there's no defense attorney present, which all seems really weird in our adversary system, uh, but it's just for the purpose of deciding whether there's probable cause to have charges. So what we have is an indictment here in this January 6th case uh, and in the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents case. Uh, those two are both federal. There is one in New York State, probably one to come in Georgia. So why would a prosecutor decide to go with the grand jury route as opposed to just uh, hand out the indictment him, him or herself? Uh, well, in the federal system, certain things are required to be brought in front of the grand jury. The grand jury uh, does give a prosecutor certain advantages. Uh, if uh, we're, you or I are approached by a police officer or an FBI agent on the street and, uh, and, and asked, uh, would you talk to us about such and such incident or crime, we could say, no, thank you. 
Uh, a lot of us would not. Uh, we would hesitate, but we could. If a grand jury is meeting, we can be subpoenaed. We can be brought in in front of the grand jury. Second advantage, like I said before, it's all secret. Uh, nobody knows what's happening. And that is actually uh, not just a sword, but a shield for the defendant because uh, an investigation can tarnish your rep reputation. Number three, the, the prosecutor doesn't have to go out and get any testimony from uh, the defense. Uh, they don't have to hear defense arguments. All of this makes the grand jury a particularly powerful weapon and a necessary investigative tool when you have people who would rather not talk to the police or the FBI. They would refuse. You put them in front of a grand jury, you subpoena them. Uh, they have to talk unless it will incriminate them. Our guest on the program today is my old uh Law School uh, criminal law professor David Harris now teaches at the University of Pittsburgh criminal law, criminal procedure evidence and other sort of things. So we're just sort of sort of doing a criminal law 101 uh, with the Donald Trump uh, indictments. Uh, professor Harris, one thing I thought I thought was interesting uh, is that uh, in the Washington D.C. Uh, January 6th case, Donald Trump sort of complained about the the grand jury and possibly the jury saying I couldn't get a fair trial because 98 percent of people voted against me in the presidential election, but in Florida. They didn't have that complaint because actually most of the jury would be called from sort of the five counties near uh, Mar-a-Lago, wherever things sort of took place. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Well, uh, he's making an argument in advance, essentially, about the venue. Venue simply means where is the trial going to be held and where is the jury going to be drawn from? Uh, they're not wrong that juries from different areas of the country could have different political opinions or, or sort of just different political leanings, but we go to great lengths when we seat a jury to screen out those kinds of things and those kinds of jurors uh, as deciding people or deciding attitudes. Uh, he could get a fair trial, and a grand jury at this point uh, isn't about a trial. It's only about the... Uh, the way that the uh, uh, charges are put together. Uh, he will have another opportunity, that is the defendant, Mr. Trump, will have another opportunity to make an argument about venue as the case goes on to ask the judge to move it. He's simply making that argument in advance right now. And it's also interesting, too, I thought, uh, I want to say it was like maybe like Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, who's also a presidential candidate, saying you know, uh, defendants should have an opportunity to move trials to where they're from. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is, that's not how the system works. No, it's not. Um, a, a trial has to be held in a jurisdiction uh, to which uh, there is a connection. All right? So the federal government has jurisdiction across the entire country. They can place a trial in any place in which there were acts uh, that constituted part of the crime. So let's take the Mar-a-Lago case as an example Obviously, the documents uh, were allegedly retained down there at the Mar-a-Lago compound. But those documents came from Washington, D.C. They were moved down to Mar-a-Lago from D.C. They belong in D.C. So the prosecutor could have charged the case in D.C. Very pointedly did not do that, put the case down in the area around Mar-a-Lago to neutralize those uh, complaints even though the government would have a right to do it in D.C. too. Put the January 6th case in D.C. because that's where the great bulk of the action took place. He, he could have placed it in other places too, any place 
uh, uh, that is connected to the crime. Uh, but uh, the, the, the president, excuse me, Mr. Trump, will have to make that argument in a more formal way in front of each judge if he wants the case to be moved. And something, old friend, I also also thought was interesting is I don't know necessarily if I was a defendant, I want the case tried where I live because people know me and can't probably can't stand me. Yeah, well, that's a possibility too. I mean, uh, maybe the only place uh, that you could have more people who have strong opinions, negative opinions about Mr. Trump, would be New York, where he lives. Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. You know, the fall will be here before you know it, and the temperatures will start to drop and get a little bit cooler. So swing on by Leon Tailoring to get you something warm that will not burn a hole in your pocket. Maybe it's a nice little bit of a heavier jacket, or maybe a heavier blouse or skirt, or no matter what it is, maybe a nice sweater. No matter what it is, you can get it at Leon Tailoring. Get it ready-made or custom-made or tailor-made. Just go on in, tell them Abdul sent you, and they'll take care of you, and they'll be happy to do it as well. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Our guest on the program today is our good friend, Professor David Harris. David teaches law at the University of Pittsburgh, criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence, and other such criminal-related matters. He was my professor in law school 20 years ago. And so I just asked him to come on the program today and just talk about a sort of a criminal law, uh, sort of 101, sort of what's going on with, with, the, with the Trump indictments and procedures in the whole nine yards. Uh, David, I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, and talk about uh, sort of Donald Trump's defenses. Uh, his profess- his uh, lawyer was all over the Sunday morning talking heads this past week, uh, sort of saying that he got, he's got a First Amendment uh, type defense. He got advice from counsel that he was that he could go forward. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Al Gore, when they conceded, uh, they talked about all this. Uh, what do you think of uh, the, the Trump's sort of public defenses right now? Well, I don't think much of them, and I'll tell you why. Uh, It is certainly true that any American, including Mr. Trump, has a right to state their opinions about elections or election integrity. Uh, Nobody disputes that. And in fact, the indictment in the January 6th case actually goes ahead and says that out loud. The problem is you don't get to use your speech to commit parts of a crime. Uh, And that is what's being alleged here. Uh, uh, You have several counts in the January 6th indictment that are about conspiracy. Mr. Trump is part of a conspiracy to subvert the election, to stop the counting of the Electoral College votes, uh, all of that. And he used his words, his speech, to complete those crimes. That's the allegation in the indictment. I mean, yeah, you have free speech, but you can't use your speech uh, to commit a crime. And that is what's being alleged. I mean, I heard a very, uh, really funny way of understanding this that rings quite true to me. You know, if, um, if, if uh, a gangster uh, says to uh, an underlying henchman, if, you know, Tony Soprano says to Paulie Walnuts, go out and whack that guy, and Paulie does it, uh, Tony is part of a conspiracy to commit murder. He can't claim free speech. Uh, I mean, that's just not how things work. Uh, what about uh, the, the, the whole thought of uh, sort of the, the, the criticism that Hillary Clinton and uh, Al Gore, uh, they conceded the, when they gave their speeches, they conceded the election, but no one went after them? Well, that's true. No one went after them because they were conceding. They may have had complaints and they have a right to voice those complaints. I remember that speech by Al Gore. He said, I strongly disagree with the Supreme Court. The vote count should have continued and I would have won. 
but it's time for me to get off the stage and move on. And he did. Uh, what What is being charged here is not the use of those kinds of words or messages. It's what Trump did with those words or messages. He encouraged the stopping of government processes and other things in order to retain power. And Clinton and Gore never got near anything like that. They simply said, I disagree. Let's move on. Professor David Harris, University of Pittsburgh, my old law professor uh, from St. Louis University 20 years ago on the program today. So talking about uh, the Trump indictments and so doing a, a criminal law 101. Uh, now, now, Dave, we've got to get in the weeds just a little bit on here. So I'm going to get in the weeds. I'm going to ask you to try to keep it to the 30,000 foot level here. Uh, something right. I noticed Something I noticed in the January 6th indictments uh, was that it was just Donald Trump named as a defendant by himself. None of the none of the none of the co-conspirators, none of the Rudy, Rudy Giuliani's, the Sidney Powell's, uh, the, the Peterson, the, that lot. Why do you think the government did that? Uh, sort of question number one. And number two. Uh, was how, how would you rate that move by the special counsel? Because my my thing is like okay, by naming by sort of naming the naming the, the co-conspirators by not naming the co-conspirators, he sort of pulls a rug from underneath Donald Trump. If Donald Trump wanted to call them as a wanted to call them as a witness, yeah, I think this is very very interesting. Interesting, a very good question. I think this is a strategic and probably correct strategy. Uh, what the prosecutor has done here is to narrow the case uh, so that it is only about defendant Trump, what defendant Trump did in order to further these conspiracies. There's nothing else there. There are no other uh, defendants in order to make the case longer or more complicated. Uh, there's nobody else in the picture. And I think that is going to, uh, that streamlining is going to benefit the prosecution a lot. Uh, there's nothing, though, that says uh, that the special prosecutor will not indict these other, what was it, five or six co-conspirators. I fully expect he will do that. All those people are going to be indicted and tried, whether singly or together. He might put them all in one case. But to streamline the case against Trump to make it as simple and straightforward as possible will, get, uh, will increase his odds of succeeding when he tries the case in a court of law. Going back to uh, the free speech versus conspiracy, where does free speech sort of, where, where do you draw that line between free speech and, you know, and a conspiracy? Because, like, going back to your Tony Soprano situation, you know, Tony Soprano could be sitting to me like, somebody ought to whack that guy versus, hey, go whack that guy. Yeah, well, it's a great question because there are places in which uh, we would have a hard time distinguishing one from the other. Uh, but when uh, uh, the uh, former president uh, is alleged to have urged Mike Pence to do something, Mike Pence says, Mr. President, I don't have the power to do that. That's not within my purview. Um, and Trump says, oh, come on. Uh, uh, and then uh, to further push him says, you're too honest. Those words are alleged in the indictment. Uh, it, it has moved from uh, any kind, some kind of abstract discussion sitting around spitballing to urging action. And that is clearly within the realm of conspiracy or supporting conspiracy. Urging somebody to take action 
uh, could be charged as aiding and abetting or soliciting. It's just charged here as conspiracy. So I think he's clearly beyond that. The hardest issue, honestly, for the prosecution, and this is where the defense will really be, is proving the intent, the mindset, the mens rea. You remember that, I know, uh, of the defendant. That's going to be the hardest thing for the prosecution. And uh, why is that, my friend? Well, because in almost all crimes, uh, we require proof of what the person's mindset was. To intentionally do this, to purposely do that, those words are always contained in the law that the defendant is alleged to have violated. And with Trump, we know uh, uh, the guy practically can't open his mouth without saying something that is provably untrue. The question is, if he himself really believes it, does he have the intention that the law requires? And in order to overcome that, as we've seen just by reading the indictment, uh, the prosecutor will bring witness after witness, uh, high-ranking people in the White House, the then Attorney General, all of whom told him, you lost, buddy. There is nothing to this. There is no evidence in order to show that no reasonable person could believe this. But that will be the toughest part. And Jenny, you also bring up an interesting point because, uh, like I said, just uh, following this uh, pretty closely on all the all the Sunday morning talking heads and the nightly shows, the question has always been: Yes, Trump got a lot of advice or a lot of counsel saying, "No, Mr. President, you can't do this," but he also got some counsel saying, "Hey, I can do this." Is this where it's sort of the concept of willful blindness comes in? Yeah, I think it really does. Uh, and of course, the, if he got legal advice, there is no defense. In point of fact, there's no defense for I followed my lawyer's advice if you had reason to believe that advice was flat out wrong. Otherwise, there'd be a market for bad legal advice. We'd have people going to lawyers who would sell their law degrees, essentially, uh, just for money, giving out the worst legal advice so people could get away with stuff. Uh, and the fact that the Giuliani's and the Powell's were telling him these wild things while people in the Justice Department and his own attorney general were saying, that's BS, there's nothing to it, we investigated, uh, that's not going to be enough of an excuse to get him off. Because if I remember correctly, uh, in one of my old case law books a long, long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, one possible mm -hmm. criminal defense could be if you had an, an official opinion from a government agency that, yes, you can do this, uh, then it turned out that you couldn't do it. But otherwise, you're, you're, you're kind of on a limb there. Oh, God, you just made me so happy, Abdul. You just, you remembered it. Oh, my gosh, that is so great. Yes, but notice how limited that is. It, it says if you got an opinion from the government agency with the power to interpret the law in this instance, it would be a defense. If you just went to your own lawyer, not enough, not nearly enough. Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Now, Leon Taylor is also well-known, we all know, for their tailor-made clothes, but you also know they're ready for their custom-made and ready-made clothing as well. That's right, clothes that are right there on the rack that you can buy and pick up, and they'll make the alterations included in the price. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. And, of course, then you know if they want something tailor-made specifically just for you, then they can do it. So whether it's tailor-made, whether it's ready-made, or whether it's custom-made, it is for you and you specifically. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you and happy to take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Our guest on the program today is our good friend, Professor David Harris, uh, University of Pittsburgh School of Law, criminal law professor, my old law professor uh, from uh, St. Louis University years and years ago. Uh, David, got about uh, 10 minutes left and some change, so I want to change gears a little bit and go from the, from the federal indictments to the Georgia 
uh, indictments that are that are possibly going to happen, uh, could happen this week or early next week. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the Fulton County prosecutor and sort of their track on all this, particularly with the fake electors and all that other fun stuff? Yeah, this is a uh, I'm a little mystified about the Georgia case in the sense that I don't know why it has taken them quite as long as it has. Maybe we will see that if an indictment eventually comes down, if they charge not only Mr. Trump, but uh, lots of people on that phone call and all the fake electors in one enormous case will then know why it took them so long. Uh, as uh, you might guess from my discussion of, of what Jack Smith did by narrowing the case down to one person, uh, making an enormous indictment of many people at once, really puts a different, uh, uh, a whole different complexion on the case, makes it much more complicated. Um, but, uh, you know, you have a core incident that happened in the Georgia case with that phone call. You have uh, uh, the defendant Trump recorded saying, uh, find me uh, 11,500 more votes. We'll take care of the rest. Uh, you have the secretary of state of the state of Georgia uh, saying they just aren't that, that, that those votes. Uh, and and, and uh, Mr. Trump saying, find them for me. Uh, that by itself is highly, highly inculpatory, really, really damaging to Mr. Trump. I think he'd have a hard time making that same claim of either free speech or uh, I really believed it because he's being told, no, there aren't those votes. And yet he's asking essentially for them to be conjured up out of thin air. And something else I thought was interesting, too, which hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And this goes to uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Trump's, one of Trump's uh, attorneys, uh, basically testifying before a House committee uh, in the Georgia legislature, uh, accusing the two, uh, election, two female election workers from Fulton County of voter fraud in the whole nine yards, and then coming back and sort of saying, well, no, my bad, that really didn't happen. Uh, when you testify in front of a legislative committee, that's under penalty of perjury, if my memory serves me correctly here. Yeah, um, we would have to go back and look to see if if that was an actual official legislative committee or not, you know, because he did the same thing here in Pennsylvania. And what these uh, hearings were, I have to put those in air quotes, were just uh, 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 essentially just gatherings that he brought together with a few elected officials. It wasn't clear that there was any hearing. It wasn't clear to me. At least I just don't remember whether he was sworn in or not. And I followed very closely what went on here in Pennsylvania. I watched Giuliani, heard him uh, when he was in court in the Middle District of Pennsylvania. And when he was up there in front of a judge, all of a sudden, uh, the story was different. He didn't scream or yell about fraud or anything like that. He he, in fact, told the judge, oh, oh, no, this is not about fraud. This is just about process, because he knows that if he utters something like that in an official proceeding in front of a judge, uh, it's his neck on the line. And he may have gone too far in a lot of other situations, but I watched him pull back there. So uh, in order for it to be perjury, it has to be material and it has there has to be a real proceeding and he has to be under oath, I think, too. Uh, so, uh, but he's got plenty of problems. I mean, just what he did in Georgia and Pennsylvania, it's already getting him disbarred. It's getting him sued, uh, civilly. Uh, but I think, uh, he's in real criminal jeopardy across a whole dimension of things that he did.
And speaking, of my friend, of fake electors, uh, I think I thought it was also interesting that uh, in Georgia they may be charged, and was, in Michigan they were charged. Wisconsin, that attorney general is looking at charges, and possibly uh, in Arizona. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and not here in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of talk here about this. That's because some of the, quote, fake electors in Pennsylvania raised real questions about whether they could sign this thing or not. They didn't want to, quote, get in trouble. And Giuliani and his folks uh, put in some kind of caveat into the document that said something like, well, this is only uh, this only goes into effect if uh, the election is overturned. And you can sign it, and now you won't get in trouble. But then Giuliani and his friends turn around and say, don't let word of this get out to the other states, the ones you just named, because they'll all want this too. I mean, that really shows some level of understanding that this whole thing with the fake electors was far, far from kosher. David Harris, uh, my old criminal law professor from St. Louis University, now teaches at the University of Pittsburgh Criminal Law, with us for about five more minutes uh, on the program today. Uh, David, one of the uh, let's move toward toward the end game. Let's say you know there there's there's a trial. Uh, Trump is convicted, but also wins the presidency. Could he pardon himself? Is it seems to be a big question that's out there. Uh, he could pardon himself for any federal charges. He can't pardon himself, in point of fact, for any state-level charges. So if we come to the weird, weird, uh, unimaginable point of Trump having a criminal conviction and winning the presidency, if that criminal conviction comes in in a federal case, uh, he can erase it essentially the next day. Uh, If, however, it comes from either the New York case or the Georgia case, uh, he can't do anything about that. So he would have to live with that as president. Now, The Constitution does not say you can't be a convicted felon. I mean, I just don't think George Washington and his friends ever imagined something like this. Uh, It doesn't say anything about that. Now, it's also interesting, too, uh, because one of the big criticisms that the the, the Donald Trump and his supporters have levied against uh, the special counsel and uh, Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General, is that the Justice Department, this is another example of the Justice Department being, quote, unquote, weaponized, going after uh, the president's political opponents, saying he's going after Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the strongest challenger against Joe Biden. What what, what do you think about this, this whole weaponization argument? Well, I don't think a lot of it, because um, that if, if you could make that stick, and it has stuck, as you say, with many, many people, a lot of folks believe that, uh, that would mean that you couldn't hold anybody accountable for things that they did uh, if that person was also a political opponent or a political candidate. I don't think the political process should be criminalized, not at all. Uh, but if somebody does something that is clearly against the law, you can't not charge them just because they're involved in politics. If you do that, if, if you accept the argument that wrongdoing is essentially insulated, if the person holds office or if the person is running for office, then you get a situation in which a person will run for office just to stay out of jail. This is essentially the charge made against Mr. Trump by one of his uh, Republican opponents, uh, former Congressman Will Hurd. He said, you know, you got to understand, he's running to stay out of jail. He's not actually running for president. So if you charge Trump at this point, you're going to get that pushback. There's no getting around it. But if you don't charge him, he's essentially insulated no matter what he has done. And we can't have that. You can't have the person above the rule of law. 
Final question for you, my friend. Uh, how do you think Donald Trump has been treated overall uh, by the justice system? Has he been treated like any other uh, criminal defendant? Or have we made special accommodations because he is a former president? Or have we even sort of gone to going, 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 going above, above and beyond that? Well, I think he's actually been treated with some degree of fairness, given the allegations that are out there. Maybe special fairness. Uh, nobody wants to have a former president charged with crimes. But uh, I know what my eyes told me on January 6th. I've seen what the guy has done. I've been a close observer. I don't have any, uh, any, any special interest in seeing people charged with crimes. Uh, but uh, if you don't charge a person like this, um, then you essentially create a justice system where the powerful get a different set of judgments and the regular folks, the rest of us, get something very, very different. Um, and every time this comes up, uh, the former president says, uh, I'm being treated differently, worse. Um, so it's a very, very difficult moment, I think, for our country. But if we don't follow through the way that the Justice Department has, and they have done it with care, uh, in my opinion, uh, and made the case simpler than it could otherwise be. I mean, he's not charged with insurrection, which he could have been. Um, uh, I think he's been treated fairly given what the allegations are, and now I'd be prepared to see how it plays out in court. And you just never know what a jury is going to do with something like this. Our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Professor David Harris, the University of Pittsburgh, uh, criminal law professor, and also my criminal law professor uh, back in law school 20-something-odd years ago. And the, the fact that I remember the thing about opinions, my friend, uh, shows, you, shows you did a really good job, so congratulations. <laughs> And congratulations to you. You live long and prosper, my friend. Hey, thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.